In just a few short weeks, Anthology Together is bringing you the best of ed tech at the Walt Disney World Swan and Dolphin Resort in Orlando, Florida. Join the global education community to hear about what's next in the future of learning, get a first-hand look at the latest innovations, and discover new insights to help both your institution and students achieve their goals. The future of learning is here, and there's no better place to see it than at Anthology Together 2022. The event kicks off on July 11th, so register today at www.anthology.com together. LeadSquared is a cutting-edge CRM platform for enrollment management. With LeadSquared, you will deliver a seamless student experience, streamline admissions processes, lower costs, and increase retention. Schedule a demo at leadsquared.com. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the EdUp Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Dr. Joe Salustio back with you again on another episode. As we're recording this, I'm literally listening, li- listening, I'm lis- listen to this podcast. I'm literally watching the ticker that tells me how many downloads of this podcast we have. Obviously, by the time this episode airs, we will have passed this number. But uh, there are 149,857 thousand downloads of the edup experience what did i just say 149,857 downloads of this podcast which you humble us um with with the engagement the listening uh we are so appreciative that we're being been able to put this together and that people actually want to listen although i wonder if my wife has listened 149,856 of those times to get the, the the number up but I'm going to assume that it's not just her and that we're providing some value to the higher ed community. We have had over the years, amazing guest hosts as we kind of celebrate this. We'll celebrate it on social media and then we'll celebrate it again when we release this episode. But we've had so many guest hosts come on and we've, we've thought we'd crowdsource our guest hosts and bring on people that know just a little bit about higher ed. I mean, not too much, um, but just a little bit. And in this case, I have a guest co-host with me that knows just a little bit. In fact, I'm so much more seasoned and I know way more than he does. Um, but he does happen to be the guru of online learning and his name is Dr. Bill Pepicello. Bill, well, hello there, Joe. Pleasure to be with you as always, sort of. <laughs> Bill, you have anything you wanna say? This is so fun. Well, I didn't know that your voice would go up that high, Bill, but uh, it is gonna be fun. Well, I just wanna say that um, if your wife is listening to you on the podcast, it's probably the only place she listens to you. Good one, Bill. Good one. Um, as, as you all know, I have the control of the sound effects. So the entire point of having a guest co-host is that I get to use them so that they don't get the applause for the jokes. I am the only one that gets the applause for the jokes. But Bill, that was pretty good. I'll tell you. Um, How are you and what's going on in Bill's life? Well, I'm just back from a a uh, month-long cruise through Europe and, Cheers. and getting ready next week to, to go back. We're going to go back to Switzerland and Austria. Uh, Cheers. So in case those of you who are listening can't guess, I'm, I'm retired, except when Joe makes me uh, work occasionally. Cheers. Lots of drinks. Cheers. That's okay, Bill. You are retired and you're allowed to do whatever you want. And nobody puts baby in the corner. There you, you know? go. Well, we're, we're excited today because I think we're going to have a really important conversation. Um, you know, we've been, we've been 
talking about this bill and you know you've been back i don't know how many of these you've co-hosted probably 20 25 of them you think how many a good number yeah yeah and we've talked about the future of work we've talked about skills development and the necessary um and then necessary place for the trades and uh how the trades are going to shape our future we are contending with so many things right now if you happen to be from california you will uh like i was i could say i was living in california for four years now as i transition to missouri and wipe the sweat off my brow as i go to a gas station now and people say oh my god here in missouri it's so expensive and it's four four seventy or four eighty and I come from California and it's, you know, 790 and I'm going, oh man, that's not that bad. We've got uh, gas, we've got inflation, we've got the people leaving their jobs and we've got remote work and we've got the battle for talent. We have so much to talk about. And so who we brought on to give us all of the answers that we don't have. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. His name is Scott Sean. he's president and CEO at Lincoln Tech. Scott, what's up? Wow, Joe, I don't know if I have all the answers. I hope I have some of the answers, but uh, there's well, a lot, I want to lot put that you uh, threw at me. Yeah. Well, <laughs> welcome look, to the show. Thanks. I look forward to discussing this topic because it's near and dear to my heart. And uh, it's, it's a really important topic, I think, for our country as well. Well, if you you can't see, obviously, because this is an audio podcast, Scott's got an incredible background. I don't know what that is, like a Ferrari or a the McLaren. That's a McLaren background. Uh, looks a lot like Bill's car since he retired, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, Scott, talk about Lincoln Tech. Let's level set for the audience. Let's assume somebody has not come across Lincoln Tech. What do you do? How do you do it? Sure. Well, we just celebrated our 75th anniversary. So we were founded right after World War II. Our founder, uh, thank you, Warren Davies, uh, was in the military and was working for the uh, VA and came across the need for training vets uh, in skills to get them back into the workforce. And back then in the, the late 40s, he started off with HVAC tech training. And then also the latest and greatest technology in automobiles was the automatic transmission. And he created some uh, proprietary training materials on automatic transmissions and opened a school here in Newark, New Jersey. We're based here in New Jersey and started the training process then and actually even also started traveling around the country and going to basically hotels and other places to train people on uh, how to fix an automatic transmission. And since that time, uh, the company has expanded and we now have 22 campuses in 14 states. And we focus on the vocational training programs that will get students skills to get them a job as quickly as possible. And we focus on three areas. We have healthcare with the largest program being an LPN program in medical assisting. We have skilled trades. So we teach people to be welders, uh, electricians, HVAC techs, and CNC machinists. And we also have the transportation group, which teaches people to be auto mechanics, diesel technicians, uh, and collision repair work, as well as heavy equipment. And uh, we've been doing this, as I said, for 75 years. And frankly, we haven't been as popular, I think, than as we are right now. I think uh, COVID threw us all for a big loop. 
but our students uh, got a new title, which is very much appreciated and very much warranted. And that is a central worker. 90% of the people that go to our schools go into programs that were deemed by the federal government to be essential workers. And so, in fact, they remained employed during COVID because we needed people to keep uh, our offices open, even though student, uh, students, even though employees weren't there. We needed people to fix the cars and the trucks so the Amazon people could deliver the goods to us. Uh, we needed nurses to help those that were ill. So our students were, remained in school during that period of time, and we enrolled more students and graduated more students. They all had job opportunities available to them when they came out. And um, it's a great, I think, uh, recognition of what these individuals do. And we've also had the great opportunity as we celebrated our 75th anniversary to kind of look back at our alumni and see what they've achieved. And I can honestly say that we have some really outstanding uh, success stories out there. One being someone you might know, uh, Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel, uh, got his start by uh, getting off of the farm that he was living in, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and going through a 12 month um, uh, electronics program. And he ended up being hired by Intel and ended up becoming their first uh, chief um, innovation officer and uh, went on to become CEO of other companies and then has been hired back by Intel and is their current CEO. So uh, I, I believe, I think everyone who probably listens to this podcast believes in the power of education and how it can transform people's lives. And I'm just happy now, it's a very long introduction by me, but I'm very happy now that people are realizing uh, you can get into the workforce at any level and where you take it from there is really up to the individual. We're gonna get into a little bit of a tax status conversation later that I yep. know all of us would like to have. Uh, but before that, I think it's critical because I've never heard anybody say it quite like you have when we talk about COVID and impact and we look at, you know, what happened, right? How did schools react? Some of them went online. Your programs, mm -hmm. I would imagine some of them you just cannot do online. You know, you want to yeah. be an airplane pilot. You want to be a mechanic of a, of a car. You want to fix it. You don't want to drive the car that the mechanic fixed online, right? I mean, yep. it's just kind of that kind of thing. So, so, but, these are sometimes programs, if you look into the past, and I, I worked in the sector myself, where, yeah, if you didn't get into this university or you didn't do good in community college, you went and you went to this small vocational college and you got this skilled trade and you're looked on, you know, probably by some peers or those that don't understand education is, is less than. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, the government puts a tag on, on these folks as essential workers. Has that yep. brought renewed... I don't know, pride of ownership in careers. And is that is that proving itself out in your recruiting, in your outcomes as people go, hey, you know what? I'm an essential worker, what are you? Well, uh, first of all, we've always had the pride in our students and what we do. That's why we've been doing it for 75 years. But it's wonderful when others start recognizing that. And I think it does help uh, certainly to encourage more people to do it. Um, and I think that we have, you know, we have some very smart students who realize, boy, I could go to your school in one year, graduate, advance in my career in three years, be making a, a nice solid wage. And I look at my friends who went to college, who graduate, still don't know what they want to do, have a lot more debt than I do, and uh, are trying to still figure it out. So, it is good that people are realizing that these are essential careers. And I think it's inspiring to see students who take these 
careers because to be honest, some, some let's say our, uh, we teach people to be auto technicians. Some of them might just remain auto technicians for the rest of their lives and become expert at that, which is great and fine. Others have gone on to advance within that organization or others have gone on to own their own dealerships. Others have gone on to start and own race car companies. Um, so again, it's really what is the, um, how driven is that individual? We just give them the basic skills to get into a career opportunity and where they take it from there is up to them. But to your earlier point, um, our society has told everyone, if you do take these jobs, you are taking, you're not getting the brass ring or the gold ring, you're getting a, you know, a plastic ring. You, you're, it's a second, um, it's not as deemed as, as worthy. It's not deemed as uh, prestigious. prestigious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, it's a shame because in this whole process of pushing everyone to college, uh, we've taken vocational programs out of our high schools to give more time for academics. And so now, and this has started back in the 80s, we have you know, two generations of people who have no idea if they have an aptitude for these types of things or even what they are. And that's also what's leading to this skills gap because they don't, they're not exposed to these industries and fields to really know what's involved. And so that's why employers can't find enough people uh, to go into them. Um, you know, I hate to say it, we, you know, we have students that don't know sometimes what end of the screwdriver to hold. Um, I don't think that existed 40 years ago. And so it's a challenge because everything that we do is not something that's going to be exported. And frankly, a robot's not going to do it. You know, you're not going to have a, a robot come and fix your car or, or like, you know, replace your electrician. Um, so these are critical skills that we need to have. And, and frankly, they're all advancing. I mean, every, you know, even if you're a welder, you're using a laptop in your job in certain aspects to read the blueprints or to do certain things. Everything is becoming much more technologically advanced. And so everything requires more training. Um, you know, I don't have to tell you, just open up a hood to your car. And, you know, it's sometimes hard to find where to put the oil in. There's so How much. How do I stuff. recharge this battery? Yeah, where you know, crammed the, yeah. in there. So everything's more challenging. Everything needs more education. And, um, you know, we're, we're happy to provide that. You know, you talk about somebody not knowing how to hold a screwdriver. One person that doesn't plan on using a screwdriver is my co-host today, Dr. Bill Papagello, <laughs> in his retirement. He doesn't want to lift a hand to do anything. Bill, over to you. Well, why should I need to if I've got all these wonderfully trained people now that I can call? Ah, well done, sir. <laughs> and, and Scott, I should you you should just know for your own edification that uh, people of Joe's uh, generation they don't have any idea what a standard shift is. He didn't know nice. there was anything yeah. other than uh, an automatic transmission. Um, I happen to do know how to drive a manual. Thank you. Yeah, now, I do know we'll how to drive that. a stick. We'll test it one of these days. Uh-huh. And then we'll see if you can parallel park. Watch out! But but anyway, <laughs> you know one of the things that I uh, that I find really interesting about Lincoln Tech, um, you know, it, w- it was established in 1946, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And you know that was a really interesting move by your founder because it it was founded about the same time the GI Bill came along. Mm-hmm. And the GI Bill was one of the things that devalued technical education mm-hmm. in our country. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hadn't made that connection before, but yes. Yes, and and you know it it went on through uh, well for decades and decades, as the uh, the four year degree became the gold standard, 
and it's really interesting now that I'm on the outside and can watch um, what's happening in higher ed and what's hap happening in the job market to see that there's a resurgence of mm -hmm. people saying, well, wait a minute, there's, there's a lot of uh, really interesting occupations out there um, that are increasingly lucrative. Mm -hmm. um, and, and certainly to, to finish a thought that you had, um, not only are, are people who graduate from Lincoln Tech, um, you know, uh, not only are they getting better jobs, but they're getting more lucrative jobs than the people who get their four-year degrees mm -hmm. and go, oh my, now what am I going to do? Um, and I say that as a person whose degrees are in Latin and Greek. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I can't change the oil. Yeah. Um, well, well the think, beauty is, though, sorry to cut you off, but the beauty no. is you can always go back to college when you actually know why you're going and what you want to do. And when, when, you, when it's going to add real value to your career opportunities. And given that college is now online, uh, if you're working or have four or five years of work experience, it's, it's a lot easier uh, to do that, whereas you, you couldn't do that probably a decade or two ago. That's an excellent point. Um, everyone who's listening, listen up to that. Uh, I have a granddaughter who's doing exactly that. Uh, she graduated from high school, didn't know what she wanted to do and said, I'm going to go to work and figure it out, uh, which she did. And now she's going back to, to college. And I think we're, we're going to see more of that. And it's not just people taking a, a year off to find themselves, mm -hmm. um, but it's people taking a year off to say, oh, well, let me look around and, and see what's there. Yeah. You know, one thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about before I uh, let Joe bumble again um, is, you know, in looking at, um, at your website, it's clear that while you understand very well um, the, the whole uh, technical education sector, you also understand that there's more than just the technical skills involved. And mm -hmm. there's a commitment at Lincoln Tech to really trying to produce a well-rounded person um, through something you call the Lincoln Edge. Mm -hmm. and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you blend the, the soft skills and the technical skills. Sure. Well, as, as you may or may not know, we constantly are interacting with employers and uh, obviously students that come to us are coming to us to get a job. So career placement is very critical to what we do and how we do uh, how, how we understand what to provide our students with training. So, first of all, all of our faculty members are not uh, educators. They are people that have been out in the field and have been doing the job. And then we give them the skills to be able to help best convey that to students. And so that way they're able to convey to students, this is what the textbook says, but if you really want to get this job done right, you do it this way. And let me tell you, my boss really loved it when I did X, Y, or Z. So they're really able to transfer knowledge that's very applicable to what they're doing. But another thing that we do is we know from listening to our employers that they're frankly, sometimes more interested in the soft skills than the hard skills. And one of the key soft skills is attendance. They want to make sure that someone's going to show up every day. Uh, we as an institution call our students if they don't show up in a particular day. Like, what happened? Why aren't you here? Uh, is, did your car break down? Do you have an issue? Are you going to be here tomorrow? Uh, we know that you need to be in constant contact with our students because they are typically older, 25, 26 years old. They have families. They have jobs. They have other things getting in the way. And we just want to make sure that 
you know, there's nothing that we can do to help them uh, be become more successful or how we can help them overcome those challenges. Uh, we also provide them with uh, placement services. And so we are working with them day one on how to write a resume, how to do interviews, uh, what types of questions they should ask the employer, what types of questions they should expect the employer to ask of them. We want them to be as comfortable when they enter that uh, interview room as possible, so they can be as successful as possible. Um, we are we have student sensitivity funds at our schools. Uh, we try to create an environment. Uh, you know, I, I love uh, this quote from Teddy Roosevelt that I, I share with our faculty: uh, "Nobody cares what you know until they know that you care." And for our faculty members, I think that's very important. I mean, some of them love to just uh, stand up there and espouse what they what they did and how they these students should react to it. But we have a lot. Of, we have a very diverse student body, and so we need to be very mindful of what challenges that they're facing. And by creating that connection, not only is it a better and more engaging learning environment, but we find that we're able to, I'll say, uh, save more students than not because uh, they do have a lot of um, challenges and they don't probably have as many support systems as uh, maybe many of us had going through college. And so when an obstacle comes their way, um, it's very easy for them to disengage and pull out. But if you have an environment where people are paying attention to them or people are cognizant of what these challenges are, then you can hopefully um, get, help them get over that hurdle so they can eventually graduate and, and be successful. So a lot of the soft skills training is really just try to create that more personal environment for the students so that they know that they can be uh, successful because also none of them haven't been successful in life in the past and have been told they're not going to be successful. And so we do view it as our job to help, you know, raise their esteem and their confidence for the brief time that they're with us. So hopefully that answers your question. Mm, so much. I have so much uh, to ask and I'm going to end up soapboxing. I know it, but I'm going to try to refrain from it. Uh, one of the, one of the things I want to ask and then, and then I'll get to the soapbox moment is when I worked for a for-profit career school for 15 years, and we used to serve a lot of students who did not make it in a community college. Mm -hmm. In fact, that was the biggest market we had, that somebody had attempted community college. They didn't do well because there wasn't the type of wraparound services. When we talk about student services yep. that the vocational uh, career college could provide. And fast forward, here we are now, many, many, many community colleges are trying to offer the types of programs that career colleges offered or have offered historically. And I still hear sometimes that those students aren't successful. And this is for the community college brethren out there too. Um, and because you're trying to mix a fast moving model that needs in uh, a student that needs tremendous support in what is traditionally a higher ed governance structure mm -hmm. and it doesn't work. And there's a reason why career colleges do so well. It's because it's the speed of service. It's the customer service. It's the care. It's not for-profit or non-profit. It's, it's surplus or it's profit. You, it's the same, uh -huh. it's like, it's gonna count the same way, right? Yep. Um, and, and it's because you, because the career colleges are able to dismantle what slows down a traditional academic structure and speed up what matters, like making the phone call to a student who doesn't attend. Where in a community college or other school, maybe that doesn't happen for weeks. That student's gone. 
And the career colleges get that. They move like at the speed of business. Mm -hmm. Is that a differentiator for you still? Is oh. that you're seeing that? Absolutely. I mean, the, 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 you just have to look at who grew during the pandemic and who shrank. Uh, we grew by 20% during that period of time because we figured out how to deliver our product remotely. So we did have to go 100% remote for three months, but as soon as we could open our campuses, we, we started reopening our campuses. But we still had to provide a, many more of our services remotely. Um, so if a student was interested in coming to us, they could call someone and still speak to someone. Uh, they no longer had to come into the campus to enroll. We've put together systems so they could do that remotely. Uh, we had to quickly train all of our faculty and how to train uh, and educate remotely. And we just created a lot more interaction with our students. I mean, our students are just as disadvantaged, if not more so than the typical community college student. And so why is it that their enrollments declined? I mean, we're not selective. You know, anyone who uh, has a you know, has graduated from high school can come to our schools. Uh, they can't go into our LPN program. They have to take a special test to do that. But otherwise, it's open enrollment. So there's no uh, differentiation between us and the community college, except that, you know, frankly, we are for profit. So we knew that if we weren't serving our students, we wouldn't be able to, you know, eat the next day. Uh, we weren't relying on someone else to to bail us out. Um, and we wanted to make sure that our students who entrusted us with their time and money could continue their education and graduate and graduate into a marketplace that was just desperate for their skills. And so it's a, dis a different mindset whereby, you know, like when I went to college, the, the mindset is kind of sink or swim. You prove that you can stay here. You prove that you can make it. And then you're worthy of our college degree. And I would say that ours is one of we've accepted you in. We will do whatever we can that's you know, that, that's possible to help, help you be successful. We're here side by side to help make you successful. Now, some people might say, well, you know, I don't know which side is better, but I know for who we are and what we do and who we serve, we're going to have a lot more people reach that finish line and become successful at the end of the day. And in that prior model, which I still think a lot of higher ed is, is kind of based off of, it's not, they're kind of viewed as it's a privilege for you to come here and you, you either do the work or you don't. And if you don't want to do the work, that's fine by me. Um, see you later. The Lead Squared integrated CRM functionality will put your institution at the front end of marketing and enrollment strategy by delivering a streamlined admissions process. Capture student interest, segment your audience, create student engagement workflows, and even integrate with your student information system to create longitudinal key performance metrics you've always wanted. You can do all of this and lower your technology costs. Check out leadsquared.com for more info. You know, I, I want, and Bill, I know you want to get in on this, but I'm not going to let you quite yet. Um, I want to add in that when you say open enrollment and you're willing to give every student a chance, there's mm -hmm. a second part of that. And it's, you have to correct me if I'm wrong on my stats, 70%. And if you're accredited, I think you're accredited by ACCSC. Yes. Which Bill, I'll tell you a little known fact about me. I've worked um, with ACCSC, ABHES, HLC twice, WASC. And I'm missing one in there. Anyway, the 70% placement percentage that you've got to place students in jobs. You want to sweat you think nonprofit higher ed is hard sometimes? And you want to sweat 
um, try to get 70% of your students placed in their career field, which by the way, can be subjective sometimes when somebody comes in to audit it and they go, is this really the career field? And you want to sweat and then some so a creditor comes in and says, hey, it's at not 70, it's not at 70%. And you go, it, what about the 1% that I didn't get? I placed 69% of the graduates in jobs. There's this, the, the be, becoming beholden to that stat. It's awesome to be able to place those students in their jobs. It is also monumentally hard. And I would argue that 99% of nonprofit institutions in this country could not do it. They couldn't do it. It's, no. You don't have the infrastructure. So I want to just balance what you said, open enrollment with the responsibility for outcomes. Well, because our creditors have different focus. I mean, our creditors kind of, if they're going to get reaccredited, there are three major things that they're kind of looking at. First, what is your graduation rate? When they have minimum standards for that, what, as you just highlighted, what's your placement rate? Minimum standards of 70%. We're at 80% on our way to 85%. Um, so, um, you know, these are minimums. I want to definitely exceed them. And then the third thing they do is they interview the students and get a survey of, you know, how happy are they with the education? If you were to look at traditional accreditors, some of their key metrics are how many books are in your library, how many faculty members do you have, what kind of training have the faculty members gotten. There's very little focused on the student and what they're there to, to achieve. It's much more focused on the institution. And because of the focus of our accreditors, we're very much focused on making sure that our outcomes are as strong as possible, is it, because that is why students are coming to us. They're coming to us not to discover who they are or figure out what to do in life. They're coming to us because they, they want to get a job. B, they've decided the job they want to get is in this field. And then to C, they want to get that as quickly and as effectively as possible. And Bill, I want to bring you in and just say, because I know you have so much to say here, that if you don't think any of you, not you two, but anybody else listening doesn't think that the big online monsters that exist, exist today are not built off a of University of Phoenix model, you'd be a little bit naive, right, Bill? Uh, well, yeah, I'd have to agree with that. Um, I'm gonna follow up on a couple of points. Um, certainly, and Scott, you don't know this, but Joe should know it, if, even if he doesn't. I served on a, a, a federal uh, committee that basically approves all the accreditors. Mm. So I've looked at the difference the between sequence. your accreditors and the, uh, you know, the, the regional accrediting bodies. Um, and certainly you're, you're absolutely right. They're looking at different things, but it's interesting because one of the things that you said was, well, it's, we're, we're for profit. And, and as Joe knows, um, every institution is for profit. Sure. I mean, if, you're, if your tax status is not for profit and you're not making more money than you're spending, uh, you're going out of business. And right now we're finding a lot of traditional uh, higher ed is learning that lesson the hard yeah, way. But higher ed's not a business, is it, Bill? I mean, come on. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I can tell you that um, when I, I also served as an accreditor, um, that if you look at why... Um, why universities are put on um, on probation or why they go uh, under, it's almost never due to academics um, or success factors for their students. It's because they cannot manage their finances. And part of the problem with 
traditional higher education is it does not have a sustainable business model. Now, I would guess that if we looked under the under the sheets of Lincoln Tech, I thought you were going to say under the hood, it would have been way better. <laughs> way better if I need any help, I'll let you know, Joe. Okay, sounds Otherwise, good. Just back sit, on mute. You can just sit down. Um, or if we looked at Lincoln Educational Services in general, which I want to talk about in a bit, mm -hmm. um, you'd notice that there's a real business model there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's one that looks a lot like the business model of, of any industry that we would look at outside of higher ed. And I think that's a really an important point uh, that shouldn't be missed in this conversation. Okay, Joe. Oh, no, Scott, you get to jump in. Well, I mean, I, I, first of all, I agree that every institution is, is uh, out there to make a profit or at least to have, as you say, a surplus. You have to bring in more than you spend. Otherwise, you're not going to be around very long. Um, so the nature of being called for profit, uh, certainly also in this current administration, is certainly viewed very negatively. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, we, we are believers in, I'll say, the competitive system of trying to figure out what is the need out there in the marketplace and how can we serve it? And that's what we're constantly focused on is how do we uh, serve more people more efficiently? We have employers coming to us and I, we probably have two to three job openings for every student that we have today. So there's a lot more that we could be doing, but how do I attract those people? How do I get those people? You know, I mean, certain people, you know, are, are uh, negative towards us for advertising. And then the reality is we have to educate people on what these opportunities are because we've taken it out of the schools. And we're frankly doing a really good service for a lot of these industries because we're pulling in people that they need, that they can't pull in themselves. And you also see that a lot of the traditional schools are looking to do advertising now as they realize it's just not like, oh, that we're magical people. That everyone's gonna to come to us, even if they're free. Uh, you know, People aren't gonna to flock to them because they don't know what they do or maybe what they do is not as good as it could be. Um, I mean, we believe in competition. We believe in having alternatives. Students can go anywhere they want. They don't have to come to us, but you know, 20, 25% of them are coming to us because a friend or a relative or an aunt or uncle came to us and has a great career. Um, so um, I, I think that all systems are better when there's more competition and more options for people. And we just provide one of those options uh, that I think people should consider. Ahead, marketing is, is an interesting an interesting point, and I know Joe is that's near and dear to your heart. But uh, University of Phoenix was constantly barraged with criticism for its marketing. But and I think you you made this point, Scott, is that one of the reasons we need the market is that many of the people who will come to your institution, just as those who came to University of Phoenix when we started didn't know that there were options. Right. They didn't even know that education was accessible to them. Um, and the only way you can do that is go out and make yourself visible. Right, I mean, if you have guidance counselors telling you, okay, what college are you going to? And that's the only option they give someone. What else are you let left to do? I mean, we have a great program, our CNC machining program, probably has like the best ROI of any of our programs. And we just can't find enough people to come into it. They, they just don't know what it is. Um, so again, you have to start, you have to do advertising and try to find these students because the employers uh, will, will hire them in, in a nanosecond. Uh, but finding people interested to understand what the opportunity is, is, is much more challenging. Unlike any other podcast you listen to in higher education, 
we do a little something here called Higher Ed Word Association, and we're going to do it right now. With your contestant, Scott Shaw, Bill Pepicello, this is where I give you a word or phrase, higher ed related, and you're going to tell me the first set of thoughts that come to your mind. Don't give me one word answers back. That makes for too short of an episode of Higher Ed Word Association. Bill, you get to start so that Scott can better prepare and you can fail. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and that's the way it works here at EdUp. I'm going to give you the word. Again, you tell me what first comes to your mind. Bill, student success. Well, student success, I think, is, is if you're going to measure um, the efficacy of any institution, student success is, is the one thing that, that we look at. Um, on an earlier process, uh, podcast, we talked with a, a college president who made a distinction between um, college-ready students and student-ready colleges. And mm -hmm. I think that is, uh, that, that is a major factor here in, in student success um, in general, but it, it's certainly the number one thing that, uh, that you have to think about, especially in today's, uh, in today's environment where education is not just a public good, it's also a, a public commodity um, and, uh, and something that, that people demand an ROI with. Scott. Well, Lincoln success. Tech jumped to, to mind for some reason when you said student success. But, you know, in, uh, in deeper meaning, uh, it's really getting our students uh, uh, careers, launching them on their careers is everyone who walks through our door. That's their mission is to get a, a their, their leg into something that's going to be more rewarding so they can support themselves and their families. So making sure that they can complete their education and then getting them into that job of, uh, of choice for them is what we would view as for us student success. And we focused really only on programs that are going to give a good ROI. I mean, there are a lot of other programs we could jump into that would be very attractive and get a lot more students through, let's say, you know, CNA, which is like one of the number one growth programs out there. But at the end of the day, you're still going to be, you know, in the old days, making 10 to $12 an hour. In the new days, maybe it's 18 to $20 an hour, but it's really not going to go anywhere from there. And so uh, we're much more focused on careers that are going to have a much uh, broader opportunity uh, level for them as well. Okay. You got the hang of it now, Scott? Because you're up I next. think so. Here we go. Are you going to jump? Okay. I'm ready. They get, they, get, they get a little harder. Transfer credit. Well, to be honest, we really don't have any transfer credits really coming in or going out. Our programs are so short and so specialized. It's very tough uh, to accept other people's credits and we're not really giving credits. Uh, they're usually not leaving our program to go to someone else's welding program, for example. Um, so for us, it really doesn't come into play. We're, again, most of our programs are 12 months or less. I like that. Bill, transfer credit. It, it's a very interesting part of, of higher education today, whether it's traditional or, or for-profit, if you're in, the, in the, the more academic aspects. The, the uh, transfer credit is becoming um, real currency in higher education, because it used to be that students would go from institution to institution. In fact, for a long time, the, the statistics were that uh, a student could expect to go to four different institutions before they graduated. And the major obstacle there was in going from institution to institution was getting their credits they had already learned or earned accepted somewhere else. 
And it's really interesting now to watch as uh, part of the, the marketing of all institutions is bring us your credits. We'll, we'll make them work for you somehow. Um, and it's, it's one of the, for me, one of the high points of how higher education is evolving a little bit as people understand that, oh, it's not really about the institution. It's about the students. So let's help them get from where they are to where they need to be. Well, with okay, so many Scott, students go. who, oh, sorry, I was gonna say, with so many students who don't graduate from a four-year school, there's just, there's a large pool of people out there that do have a lot of credits, but don't have that degree. So it's a good market to satisfy because then you'll be able to complete their, their journey, so to speak. All right, Scott, here we go. Yes. Learning technology. Ah, learning technology. Well, it's changing very rapidly, especially since uh, COVID. Uh, we are, you know, we luckily were able to succeed in COVID because we had already moved a lot of our, certainly our automotive program over to laptops. So everything was delivered over our laptops. So we didn't have to buy that equipment and students were already um, using it. We're getting very much more into VR technology. We use it in welding. We're using it in our collision program. We have some VR technology that we're putting into our electrical and HVAC programs. So I think that um, technology is gonna be becoming more and more important as a way of both um, educating people, but also in keeping them engaged gamification and trying to keep certainly our students uh, motivated to move forward in their curriculum is, is critical to their long-term success. And so I think technology is just going to in, increase and enhance. And you know what we do try to do though is make sure that it's uh, there's efficacy. There's lots of sex appeal around a lot of technology, but at the end of the day, the student hasn't learned anymore, isn't graduating at a better rate or having a higher skill level. Uh, you're just really spending a lot of money on bells and whistles with no no benefit so we we also like to make sure that the technology is worth something in technology it's funny it works both ways right you think about cars and I, I just took my car to get new tires they took pictures of the tires that mm -hmm. i had apparently my wife says i hit a pothole and i made this bubble <laughs> in my tire i feel like she hit the pothole i lost the argument i just had to accept the fact that i hit the pothole even though I disagree, but we'll talk about that in a future episode of the Edip Experience. And picture the tire, picture of the new tire, picture of the tire being removed, picture of the tire being put back on. Think about rental cars. I traveled for many years. I know, uh, Bill, you have, I'm sure you have, Scott, to your, how many, 22 campuses? Yeah. You go rent a car. They used to walk around the car with you and say, What's, here's a ding, and when you come back, we'll note it. And they'd color it on a piece of paper, like a little scratch. Now they take pictures of it, and so if you ding that sucker, you're going to pay. And so it protects both the consumer and the business in a way and how to, and then you, you elevate that to engengines and it was to the health field and keeping track of statistics. I mean, it is a just growing, growing piece of what we do and it's affecting our lives bill over to you. Sorry for that sidebar. Yeah. I, w I was wondering if you forgot that we were <laughs> here and I was no, supposed I was, to get the talk. I think my feelings are hurt that I, feel that my wife feels I ruined the tire, but you know. <laughs> I'm sure she was right. In any event, I've had the advantage of, of watching technology in higher education advance from, you know, basically when it was correspondence, we were sending things back and forth to the clunky early days. Yeah, Bill, um, you were around during telegram times. 
Yeah, well, I, 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 Samuel Morse was a was a friend of mine. Yeah, um, you've seen technology from its true beginning to where it is today. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help myself, buddy. Especially in, in higher ed, and um, you know, one of the things that's true, um, you know, University of Phoenix was very successful because we had been bumping along, and when the the uh, World Wide Web uh, was was finally made accessible. We knew everything there was to know about distance education at that time, so it was a matter of transferring it. And other um, other institutions and accreditors uh, gave us a hard time for a long time, saying, "Oh, this is it's a fad. You know, this online thing is never going to catch on." Um, and slowly they came to it, um, but in with COVID. I think the acceleration of, uh, of technology in higher ed just went through the roof. Everybody realized this was gonna be a, a serious part of the future. And I think a, an important part, uh, point that Scott made um, is that higher education needs to learn that technology is not just bells and whistles. It needs to have efficacy in the same way that, uh, that banking or Amazon or other industry, industries do, where there's a blend of uh, brick and mortar and, um, and, and virtual participation that make it a, a seamless um, and uh, valuable experience to the people who are using it. Yeah, and, and I would argue that learning online is a skill that everyone's gonna need because yeah. when you're in the workforce, you're most likely gonna have some training that's gonna be online. Um, so the sooner you're kind of used to that, uh, probably the better. Yeah, you guys did wonderful on this episode of Hired Word Association. We're going to need to go to the judges, though, to declare a winner. I'm going to ask the judges, did Scott Shaw beat Bill Pepicello? 100%. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode, by the way, uh, guest co-host cannot beat a guest here, as you've uh, heard. Uh, but, Scott, you did win. Ladies and gentlemen, another episode of Hired Word Association. All right, so we're going to close out this episode. Bill, do you have any last questions for Scott? Uh, no, except that, where do you, well, I don't want to take Joe's thunder, but in five years from now, do you expect that you'll be growing in new areas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I expect that our footprint will be larger simply because a lot of our business partners uh, want us to be in other locations that we aren't today. So we'll definitely have more campuses. Um, and then ant anticipate being into new areas because that's kind of what we do. We look to what, what's evolving, what's new out there. And I'm certainly, uh, I'm certain that there will be lots of changes, especially with electric vehicles coming online, uh, with the need for um, renewable energies. There are going to be more trades that are going to be need to be, frankly, developed to service those industries over time. So I would anticipate we'll be in those as well as I could see us getting into aircraft maintenance mechanics, very similar. Uh, sorry, someone's trying to call me. Um, very similar. Uh oh, somebody get it. Last time Bill had his phone ring, Scott. So, you know, we're. <laughs> so, or maybe we'll get into aircraft mechanics, very similar to being a diesel tech or an auto tech, but just a bigger machine. So uh, that's how I envision our next five years rolling out. By the way, for anybody, I mean, it's getting rarer that people have the opportunity to work for multi-campus institutions, because I think unless you're a college like Lincoln Tech where you're hands-on and you need to be in these areas, online education is really eliminating the need for multi-campus locations in a way. Um, it is hard 
I mean, you guys can correct me if I'm, it's hard to manage multi-site locations. It's compliance, it's people, it's different hiring practices in different states. It's a whole thing. And if you haven't done it, I mean, Bill, I know you obviously have done it. I worked for two institutions, one with 15 campuses and one with 42. It's really, really hard to do it and manage it every day. And Scott, I, I think that's just something that gets lost in these conversations. It's like, oh, you're, you know, Lincoln Tech and you got 22 campuses and here's this university that got a single campus. That's experience that will go away in the long run. And it's harder and harder to get these days. So you've got some pretty, I'd imagine, some pretty knowledgeable employees in the world of business in higher ed. Yeah, Joe, just uh, just for the record, you're an amateur. I had over 200 sites. I always, <laughs> uh, I always know you're going to one up me, Bill. Count what do you it. think, Scott? Yeah, well, no, it's, well, there's lots of regulations. Every state has their own uh, board of nursing, as an example. They all think differently. Uh, we, we have to abide by the national rules, the state rules, the accrediting rules, the programmatic accrediting rules. Uh, so there is lots of you know, variability out there. But, you know, like anything, once you do it, you learn it. And uh, I, I'm fortunate that uh, we have a lot of tenure at Lincoln Tech. My management team, uh, the top 15 people have an average of 18 years with Lincoln. So we're, there's a lot of knowledge there that we've acquired over, over that period of time. And, and uh, making sure that one remains compliant is uh, critical in, in our industry. Amazing. All right, here's your final two questions, Scott. Number one, what did we not say about Lincoln Tech? Anything that you go, you know what, I should, I should have brought that up. Now's your chance. Plug the website. Say anything that you want to say somewhere you're going to be speaking, some program you're rolling out. Make it exclusive, in fact, here on the EdUp Experience podcast, if you want. And well, uh, go, yeah. go ahead. So the first one is, is since we just kicked it off, uh, what is today, Wednesday? So on, on Monday, we kicked off our partnership with Dave Kindig. Uh, if you watched uh, the Discovery Channel, here's our show called Bitchin' Rides. And he does really high-end uh, car repairs. Mm -hmm. A typical car costs, uh, I don't know, I, when I went to a shop, I said, oh, this looks nice. How much does that cost? Like $400,000. Okay, oh, thank you. I'll, yeah. I'll move on. But anyway, he's desperate to find people with higher level skills. And so we're trying this new program to give basically people that are in the industry already kind of like a master class on uh, collision repair and refinishing. So to me, that's very exciting. It is awesome. That is awesome. All right, number two and final question. What do you see as the future for higher education? Um, well, I think it's going to change dramatically because it's an industry that uh, needs some changing. It's just too expensive for too many people. Uh, why is a degree four years? I don't know who came up with that number, but things are going to change, I think, going forward. And I think also certainly in our sector, I think industry is going to become more connected. And um, I think it's only fair, especially if students are making the investment in themselves to make themselves more attractive to companies, that companies come up with a way to help them uh, overcome their debt burden sooner rather than later. So I think there's going to be lots of changes around how much does one need in education. And I think there, frankly, will be more uh, avenues of education because pushing everyone through a four-year program um, is, is not the right answer. Uh, we definitely need, if you look at the, uh, the workforce, what's happening is those positions that are just a high school degree or less are shrinking and those with more training are growing. So there definitely needs to be more post-secondary education. It just doesn't all have to be at the bachelor's level. And we just have to be more mindful of that. 
Love it, Scott. This has been an incredible episode. Before I go, I do want to give one quick shout out. In fact, he's going to shout it out for me. Uh, the gentleman here, Bill Pepicello, has his own podcast under the Edip Experience Network. Bill, give it its due. Well, thank you, Joe. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm a spinoff of this. Um, and I have to thank Joe for spinning me off. But I have a it's podcast. the only time you ever thank me, by the way. And I'm yeah. sure it'll never happen again. Probably not. Um, but I have a weekly podcast called Ed Up Insights. Um, it's mostly me um, ranting and opining about various topics in higher ed. And, and certainly um, technical uh, education is, is one of those for people who want to go on. They're all short. So you ought to go on and listen to them. You can listen to two or three at a time before you fall asleep. Um, and in the future, I'll be doing uh, uh, some actual interviews similar to this, but, but of course, uh, much more expertly run. Um, <laughs> Ooh. So that's, uh, well said. That, that is Ed Up Insight. Um, and you can also get some of the insights on uh, my book, which is on Amazon called Leadership on the Field of Play. And I have it right here in my hands, ladies and gentlemen, Bill's book. Um, I will tell you, uh, I feel honored to be on this phone call with you two gentlemen who have done so much to help uh, the world and the United States with higher education and training of people who we need, essential workers, uh, incredible uh, stuff. Scott, did you enjoy your time today here on the Edup Experience with me, not necessarily with Bill? Much more so than I thought I would. <laughs> oh, we'll take that. With Bill, you mean. You knew you'd enjoy it with me, but more than you thought. Yeah, so that's it. That's it. Right. That's it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, he's Scott Shaw. He is CEO and president of Lincoln Tech. He is an amazing man, and he's doing amazing work. Scott, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Bill. And, of course, my co-host, the guru of online learning, Dr. Bill Papagello. Ciao. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. Lead Squared isn't only an enrollment CRM. It's a technology that will allow you to optimize your entire front-end student lifecycle by providing decision-makers with real-time customizable dashboards. Forecasting, measuring, and optimizing for key activities will increase retention and revenue, and LeadSquared will lower technology costs simultaneously. Not only can LeadSquared align with existing admissions processes, but the technology will also help you innovate beyond what you thought was possible. The ability to access data on your phone will keep you connected, and when you add in the world-class customer service, Lead Squared transcends being a technology. It's an experience. Check them out at leadsquared.com.